listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey everybody, it's episode 10, Ohio versus Murder 3.0. Today we'll be talking about the career of the famous untouchable, Elliot Ness, who was the Cleveland Public Safety Director in the 1930s and 40s, known for his times in Chicago fighting Al Capone, but it was these years in Cleveland that Ness, the lawman, was most proud of. And we'll be talking about the Cleveland Torso Murders, Ohio's first serial killer in the 1930s in Cleveland, also known as the killer was known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. We'll talk about Ness's sterling career in law enforcement in the city of Cleveland, but how he's always bedeviled by this case. And did he ever actually solve the case of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run? Our guests today are going to be Dr. James Bedell, the author in the wake of the butcher, um, really the renowned historian, professor, up in Cleveland, uh, the man to talk to when you're talking about the Cleveland Torso Murders. And we'll also be joined by Becky McFarland, Cleveland historian, uh, to talk about Elliot Ness and her career, uh, his career in Cleveland. You know, no matter who we talk to, they all said you got to talk to Becky McFarland if you're talking about Elliot Ness. And she was fantastic. It was so good to have her on. A quick reminder: our show, season three, is supported by GoBus. Our friends at RideGoBus.com, they can get you anywhere almost in the state of Ohio. Uh, they have Wi-Fi and reclining seats, bathrooms, uh, very comfortable buses and very cheap rates. So if you're, you don't have a car, if you want to take a bus trip uh, to almost anywhere in Ohio, go to RideGoBus.com to check out their routes all over Ohio. In show news, uh, we were just featured on ColumbusUnderground.com, uh, the popular website here in Columbus. And we were the guest on Tim Fulton's The Confluence Cast. It's Columbus Underground's Columbus uh, podcast. And we had a great time talking about the show, talking about history and Ohio history and, our, and serving on the board with the Ohio History Connection. Um, and again, you can find that on ColumbusUnderground.com or download and, and subscribe to his podcast, The Confluence Cast. Again, the host, Tim Fulton, good friend. And so glad that he had us on. We had a really fun conversation you can go check that out. Go to our Facebook page if you just want to find an easy link to it. Uh, and you can find some recent posts on it. Uh, or again, go to the Confluence Cast and subscribe to that show. It's a weekly show and it's always really good stuff. Our beer for the episode today, we're talking about Elliot Ness. And obviously we're drinking Elliot Ness. Great Lakes Brewing's flagship beer, the Elliot Ness Amber Lager, 6.1%. This is a beer that has won you know, 12 different gold or silver medals at the World Beer Championships, um, you know, and that's since the beer came out in the 1990s. You can go check out their brewery, uh, GreatLakesBrewing.com, and this is you know a really smooth amber lager that, that that I've been drinking forever. You can find it at any store really in in, in Ohio. So again, GreatLakesBrewing.com, 
uh, and go look at their restaurant in Ohio City up in Cleveland. Great spot. But today on our annual true crime murder episode, we're talking about the Cleveland Torso Murders. We'll talk about how a dozen or more Ohioans were chopped up and found in pieces across the city. That's the city of Cleveland, then the fifth or sixth largest city in the country. We'll talk about Cleveland during the Great Depression and how they lived on the, with this terror on the front pages. We'll follow Elliot Ness's investigation. We'll follow Elliot Ness's career as he cleans up Cleveland, then the most dangerous city in the Union. This, this idea of a serial killer was not something that people were familiar with in the 30s. You know, we've had Jeffrey Dahmer and the Ted Bundy tapes are out on Netflix. It's something that we're used to. But this is not something they had ever really addressed during the Depression era in America. And we'll, we'll ask the question of Dr. James Bedell and our other guest, Becky McFarlane. Did Elliot Ness solve the Cleveland Torso murders? Without further ado, let's get into the grisly details. It's episode 10, Ohio versus Murder. Many of those listening know Elliot Ness, you know, as his his character played by Kevin Costner in the 1987 film The Untouchables. Or his show, the long-running show The Untouchables, where he's played by Robert Stack. And let's just get this out of the way right away. The Untouchables story was not true. It's a book that Ness somewhat helped write. It was, it was ghost-ridden, really. Um, and it's a book that Ness ultimately walked away from. He signed away his his story, or what he called his fake story, for 300 bucks. It's important to know that Elliot Ness was one of the great lawmen and police officers in this country, but he was not the character that we see in the movies and on the to- on the television screen. You know, he he did play a role in bringing down Al Capone. You know, he's he's the head of this Untouchables group, which is basically a group of police officers that were not on the take. And there are some great stories from the Untouchables, um, but they're really not found in that book. And, and Ness didn't feel like it was a true representation. But they did break up his breweries. They did present a case to the grand jury in Cook County uh, against uh, you know against Al Capone. But ultimately, the prosecutors decided to go with the stronger case, the tax case, the tax evasion case, which is also ultimately what put Al Capone away. But Ness would do things like you would follow, you know, find a Capone brewery, follow the trucks, and there'd be different, you know, drop-off points, and he had an elaborate operation. But he busted up a lot of those operations for Capone. It was a huge pain in his ass. Um, that part's true. But a lot of the stories that you see in that Ness single-handedly, or in the Untouchable single-handedly took down Capone, it's just not true. We asked our guest, Becky McFarlane, an Elliot Ness expert, about those years in Chicago. Elliot Ness was with the Treasury Department, and they, as a unit, were out to get Capone because he was one of the biggest, most you know, lucrative gangsters in his time. And so although Elliot Ness was doing a good job busting up some of the stills and bootlegging that Al Capone did, breweries, yeah. right, it was the uh, tax unit that put him away. Towards the end of his career, Elliot Ness was having a drink with some friends and a writer from the New York Post named Oscar Fraley joins them. And their discussion, and Elliot Ness loved to have a drink, um, their discussion would go late into the night 
with Ness telling Fraley and his friends old stories from Chicago. And Fraley agrees, Fraley agrees to ghostwrite a book. It's really his suggestion. And Ness says, you know, I'm not a writer. Uh, and he sends him a little bit of story here, a chapter here. And, you know, after a year or so, Fraley returns this book to him. And Ness is, is kind of turned off. The book isn't really true. There's still people who can fact check this. And he's a very honest guy, known for his, you know, high moral code. Um, and, and Ness says, you know, this isn't my story. We talked to Becky, you know, about the Untouchables and how Elliot Ness never made a dollar off the popular TV show, the hit movie. He signed away his rights and really would die in debt. Uh, he would die before his story in Chicago became such a big hit. It really happened, actually, almost quite literally just after he passed away in 1956. Um, Oscar Fraley had been working on a book with Elliot Ness entitled The Untouchables, and it was published right after Ness passed away, and it was an immediate bestseller, and in the same calendar year, uh, Desilu Productions bought the rights to it and hired Robert Stack, and the rest is history. Um, you know, I've heard some of your speeches. Is it true he never made any real money off The Untouchables? He never got any royalties for it. In fact, there's a letter at the Western Reserve Historical Society that says that he did not accept any royalties for it. He was paid $300 to uh, sign away the rights to, to his The own Untouchables. Life. Wow. Well, he said it wasn't representative of his own life and times in Chicago. So that's why, with pride, he said he didn't want anything to do with it and signed off the rights. As we begin our discussion of the Cleveland Torso murders, we go to Euclid Beach. On the shores of Euclid Beach, it's a, a sandy beach right off of Lake Erie on the east side of Cleveland near Brattonall. Uh, one thing I miss about Cleveland is it has beaches. And they're a lot cleaner than they used to be back in the day. But, you know, sometimes I would just go and, and, and find a little sandy beach in Cleveland, read a book, and, and spend the day. But today we're going to go back to September 5th, 1934. And we'll talk to Dr. James Bedell about possibly the first victim of the serial killer in Cleveland, the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run, when the Lady of the Lake washes up on Euclid Beach. There was something on it. Uh, I do have the report from the scientific lab at the time as to what the material was. The guess was that they some that the murderer had put something on the body to hasten decomposition, and this had the opposite effect. It helped preserve it. The lady of the lake was possibly the first victim. Chopped up, she had a weird chemical placed on her skin, never identified. But quickly, two more victims show up. One was covered with the same or very similar chemical as the Lady of the Lake. Suddenly, Cleveland had three murders in one year. We talk about the two gentlemen found at Jackass Hill in September of 1935. These two, Edward Andrassi, an unidentified victim, are the very first recognized or official victims of the serial killer. Oh, yeah, they found victims number one and number two. Uh, this was September 23rd, 1935. Two young neighborhood boys, if memory serves me. Peter Costura, age 12, and James Wagner, age 16. 
And apparently they were tossing a softball back and forth at the rim of Jackass Hill. And the ball went down into the gully. And so the two boys raced each other to get the ball. Uh, The older boy got down there first, and he looked around and he froze. And he ran back up the hill, intercepting his younger colleague, saying, there's a dead man there in the bushes with no head. Uh, When the police arrived, they found the body of a naked man, except for his socks, decapitated and emasculated. As they were exploring the area, they found the body of another man, also decapitated and emasculated, but this one had been there for quite some time. Uh, The initial newspaper reports guessed about a week. It's probably more like three. These first victims, Edward Andrassi, the one who was identified, these bodies, this would be crucial evidence in this case. These bodies were dismembered so much they had, you know, you couldn't get fingerprints on them. Obviously, the technology wasn't the same, but IDs were really difficult. So to know that one of them was Edward Andrassi, we talked to Dr. Bedell, who was this victim? The victim, really victim number one for sure, of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury run. Edward Andrassi was what police in those days called a snotty punk. Uh, he was a real con man, bought his clothes from a fence, dressed <laughs> nicely, uh, had a way with the women, only held one steady job in his life, and even that one wasn't all that steady. Uh, he worked as an orderly in the psycho ward of the old Cleveland Hospital, and he was either hired and fired nine or 11 times over a period of years. At the, at the psych ward? At the psych ward, yes. Into this mix comes Elliot Ness. He's hired in December, December 11th, 1935, a few months after Andrassi was found, to become the city safety director. Cleveland has a safety director who's basically the head of the police and the fire. The new mayor, uh, Harry Burton, appoints Ness to this really prominent position. We talked to Becky, though, about why would someone take this job? Cleveland, you know, the most dangerous city in the country at that point. Crime rate through the roof during the you know, the middle years of the Great Depression. And we asked Becky McFarland, why would he take this job? That our newly elected reform mayor, Harold Burton, said, you know, he needed a safety director, and he tapped Elliot Ness, asked him if he would like it. As you say, who would want that job in 1935? Because we were the fifth largest city in the country, but we were number one most dangerous. There was no other large city in our country that had more murder, rape, robbery, juvenile crime, or automobile accidents than we did here in Cleveland. So why he took it, I can only say it was youthful optimism because he was only 32 years old and um, still remains the youngest ever safety director in Cleveland. Ness takes on police corruption. That's one of the first things he does in, in 35 and 1936. In the entire 15th precinct, he switched out. Switched out every of them, had them reassigned. He brought a number of, of police officers to trial. Um, Ness remained incorruptible. You know, at a time 
when virtually every police officer was bought. He demanded honesty above everything else, and he expected it from others. So we talked to to Becky uh, about the police corruption as being one of the sources uh, of the crime and, and the lawlessness in Cleveland, Ohio during the 1920s and 30s. Some went to the state penitentiary in a hurry, yes. And so when he first came in, he took a look at the police department. He knew there was some corruption, yes, um, even at the higher levels of captain, as well as some of the street officers. However, what he did was first, he looked at the fact that they hadn't even been trained. Our Cleveland police officers at that time had not gone to a police training academy. Um, For the most part, they were handed a gun, a badge, and told, why don't you watch over that corner there? And that's wrong. So he immediately established a police training academy, made it difficult to pass the civil service exam, even tested their temperament to make sure they weren't, you know, some hothead out on the street with a gun. And so with that improvement, and then, of course, to focus on the officers who were on the job already, uh, he was able to weed out the corrupt ones. And there really weren't as many as some might speculate, because I did dig into that. And there were not that many who were fired because of corruption. And Ness had a good handle on that. He yeah. didn't ask anything of somebody else he wouldn't demand of his own self, and he wanted them on the streets fully trained and ready to go. The mob is fresh off prohibition in Cleveland, Cleveland being one of the first real four or five cities to be controlled by the mafia. We talked to Becky you know, about Ness taking on the mob and Ness, you know, trying to, Ness sending a number of these mobsters to the state pen down in Columbus. And Ness, you know, trying to to be the public safety director that Cleveland needs, the hero Cleveland needs, during the Great Depression. Without a doubt, it had a huge influence. Um, just the fact that juvenile crime was so rampant was definitely true across the country. That was true because of the Great Depression. Um, you know, people who are good people even might have been led to steal a bottle of milk off the neighbor's porch or something because they had children who were hungry. And little kids were even starting to learn bad ways. Um, Elliot Ness put a curb to juvenile crime by starting Boy Scout troops all over the city. But um, also with the organized crime was a direct parallel. You know, when it's hard times, organized crime found a way to get in there and kind of take money from people doing the racketeering in the poorer neighborhoods, which was extra cruel because they really didn't have any money to lose. Sure, and that's the area of town where the numbers racket, the pol- you know policy, and uh, what's mm-hmm. the clearinghouse? Is that the other one? Right, yeah. <laughs> you uh, know your organized crime. And one of the names for this killer, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, you know, I lived in Cleveland for years. I don't remember an area called P- Kingsbury Run. And Andrassi and, and the third victim that were found with him were found in this area. It kind of goes from like the flats out to, you know, we'll talk to Dr. Bedell out, but out east. And Kingsbury Run, you know, kind of this dark, dangerous you know, hobo jungle that you'd find during the Depression in some cities. You know, the train tracks ran through it and hundreds, in, you know, of, of transient people lived in Kingsbury Run. We act, asked Dr. Bedell about the area of Cleveland known as Kingsbury Run. Kingsbury Run is the remains of a prehistoric (laughs) riverbed. It's connected to the flats. It swings out in the southeast arc. 
oh, I suppose out to East 79th or so. It's where the train tracks and the rapid transit tracks are. Uh, in the 30s, it was filled with trash and debris. There were, at one time or another, six different hobo jungles in Kingsbury Run. A lot of people said it was haunted. In 1936, one of these years that we're talking about today, Cleveland was surviving the Great Depression as well as any large city in America. You know, nearly a million people, 900,000 or so, fifth or sixth largest city in the country. Cleveland had two major events in 1936 that would be going on around the time of these murders and around Ness making his name on the shores of Lake Erie. The first was the 1936 Republican National Convention hosted at the Public Auditorium in Cleveland. The Republicans uh, ended up nominating Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas, um, who, who would lose to FDR in FDR's first re-election campaign. Another event, the Great Lakes Exposition, also known as the 1936 World's Fair, uh, a huge event in Cleveland, in Cleveland history. Uh, it was held on the lake, kind of over by where the Science Center and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are now, you know, over there by kind of East 9th and Lakeside. Um, still a very popular area for, for Cleveland tourists. But we ask uh, Becky McFarland about those uh, events and really focus on on the Great Lakes Exposition, which ran for two years along the shores of Lake Erie. Great Lakes Exposition that was held the very next summer. 36, yeah. Yes, and it brought in 11 million people who spent over $4 million. That's not a lot of money in today's world, but $4 million Depression-era dollars. That's a lot of money. That was a great shot in the arm to the city at a time when we needed it. It was something like a World's Fair, and it uh, ran for two summers summer of 36 and 37. And of course, the murders had begun theoretically in 1934. And the last thing city fathers wanted was negative publicity about Cleveland. Unfortunately, they didn't get their wish. There were three murders in the summer of 36. Thanks for listening to Ohio V. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection for only the Ohio Historical Society preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. You know, the Great Lakes Exposition was, was held in 1936 in Cleveland, 100 years after the city of Cleveland was, was incorporated. And every year in Ohio at the State House, the Ohio History Connection throws what's called Statehood Day. We commemorate the birth of Ohio back in 1803. Uh, and Statehood Day, which is coming up here February 27th at the Ohio State House, a great lunch. You can go to ohiohistory.org. Uh, slash participate or just look up Statehood Day, Ohio Statehood Day, um, and you can register and come hang out with us. And, and at that event on the 27th, uh, we're going to have a, the keynote speaker will be Glenna Wallace, Indian Chief of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma. One thing that I've really, really enjoyed since I've joined the board of the Ohio History Connection is their outreach to Native American tribes that were so brutally and terribly forcibly removed during the 19th century. And one thing that we do every year 
and this will be the fourth year coming up in 2019, is host what's called the Tribal Nations Conference. I was able to go to my first Tribal Nations Conference this year where Native Americans from all over the country come to the Ohio History Center in Columbus, Ohio. We tour sites across the state. A conference is held for a number of days, um, and it's a really awesome experience. And you can experience some of that if you go to Statehood Day. But we talk with Stacy Half Moon. Stacy works at the Ohio History Connection. I've had a great time working with her. And we talk with Stacy, the director of American Indian Relations at the Ohio History Connection, about the Tribal Nations Conference. We're looking for sponsors for for 2019. Two corporate sponsors. Uh, every other year, it's really a lot of it is funded by the Department of Transportation. Um, but in these odd years, we come up with a lot of the funding through the Ohio Con- uh, History Connection ourselves. But we talk with Stacy um, about this Tribal Nations Conference and why it is so important to the mission of the Ohio History Connection. Well, this has been a really great opportunity. You know, when this first started, we're only on our third annual. It feels like our 10th annual (laughs) already, in a good way. Um, But this is our third annual, and so I would say this is a young endeavor. And when it began, we really wanted that opportunity, both ODOT, Federal Highways, and especially here at the Ohio History Connection, we wanted the opportunity to invite the tribes back to Ohio to be able to have a, a conversations with them about the projects we're undertaking. As you know, Ohio History Connection is doing a lot of work across the state. And a lot of that work, whether it's at a historic site or related to our collections, does impact American Indian tribes. And so we really just saw this as an opportunity to say, come back to Ohio. Um, let us tell you about all the work we're doing. We want to hear about the work you're doing. Um, these are tribes that have connections with Ohio going back. Uh, we talk about pre-contact tribes who were here, indigenous to this region, um, moving into post-contact, the historic period tribes who were Um, moving through the area, if you will, because of encroachment in the east. Um, So there's just so much uh, history, American Indian history, going back 15,000 years here in Ohio. And when you look at where those tribes are headquartered today as federally recognized tribes, they are headquartered all over the United States. We work um, with Seneca Nation there in New York. They will be here in October. Uh, Pokagon Band, Potawatomi is in Michigan. They will be here in October. And many of the tribes who were originally here um, were removed to what was in Indian Territory and today is Oklahoma. So tribes like the Shawnee Tribe, Eastern Shawnee, Absentee Shawnee, Miami Tribe, Ottawa Tribe, they're all located in Oklahoma today and they'll be coming back as well. More information on American Indian relations at Ohio History Connection can be found at ohiohistory.org forward slash American Indian Relations. And thanks again to Stacy and everybody at the Ohio History Connection who, who has made such an effort in recent years uh, to American Indian outreach. And you'll hear more about that Tribal Nations Conference that will be held again next fall here in Columbus, uh, and I look forward to helping them put that together.
we get back to our episode about Elliot Ness and the Cleveland Torso murders, you have to focus on, you know, why is Elliot Ness so famous? I mean, the guy, you know, if you're Alex, you're telling me he didn't even really put away Capone. Well, one of the things he was able to do was completely turn Cleveland around. And that's why he's definitely still a very famous person in Cleveland. That's why I'm drinking his beer here, you know, almost 80 years after he was the, the safety director. He was an innovator when it came to police work. The crime rate is, is down. His first 18 months on the job, Cleveland's total crime rate drops you know, 25%. Juvenile crime drops 75-80%. And it's not just that he cleaned up the police force or he worked really hard, which he did, but it was also the innovations in Cleveland policing and how he changed the way and really modernized the Cleveland police force that changed the city for the better. Two-way radio, it seems so silly and how obvious, of course, it would be a good thing to have, but we didn't. We were using the call boxes, and as soon as he installed two-way radio in the cruisers so that they could talk to the station and say what's the problem, it, it increased the efficiency just beyond anything believed possible. And he looked at a big old grid map of the city and thought we had a ridiculous amount. I forget now how many districts, 14, 16, something like that. And he said, we don't need that many. And he refined it down to the six we have now. Yeah, the same ones we have now. And the borders truly, for all these decades later, have changed very little over the time. So he had a good handle on, um, you know, running an urban area and doing so efficiently. And he did so by, he started the EMS unit. He um, uh, put, of course, radios in the fire trucks as well. Just all across the board, everything became so much more efficient. Right. I mean, before they would just get a call and then fire would show up and, you know, police would show up. You wouldn't know what yeah. you're going into at all. No, the bells would ring in the station. And why are the bells ringing? Yeah, no. Do they need an ambulance, fire truck, what? As innovative as, as Elliot Ness was, it wasn't enough to stop the murders and the dismemberments. From Andrassy's killing in, in 35 through September of 36, there were six murders. You know, Dr. Bedell talks about, you know, how Ness and, and the police were tasked with stopping these murders. We've got the Republican convention. We've got this amazing Great Lakes Expo, this World's Fair. But there's six killings in the year of 1936-35. And another victim ID'd, one of the few that was ever ID'd, was Flo Palillo. We asked Dr. Bedell about yet another victim of the Mad Butcher. Uh, Flo Palillo was a part-time waitress, a part-time barmaid, a part-time prostitute. Uh, She lived in a rooming house (coughs) on Carnegie. And for those who know Cleveland geography, pretty much where that Cadillac dealership is now. Uh, Her body, at least part of it, was discovered uh, on one very cold January morning. Uh, a dog in that area was barking, keeping people awake. And finally, a woman who, as far as I know, was never identified, went out to see what was disturbing the dog. And she went up an alley off of East 20th behind this building, Heart Manufacturing. And what she saw was a couple of produce baskets covered over with burlap bags. And she lifted the corner of one of the bags and saw what she thought was a ham. And so she went back down to East 20th and there was a butcher right there. And she went into his shop and said, I found baskets with some hams in them. He thought someone had robbed his shop. 
So he ran back up the alley, reached in, and to his shock, pulled out a human arm. It was approximately half of her body. Uh, Her head was never recovered. The rest of her body was discovered about 10 days later on Orange Avenue during a thaw in the weather. How did they know it was Flo Palillo? Fingerprints. Yeah. Uh, It's the same same way they identified Andrassy. They both had police records. You know, Flo's one of, of many victims already of the of the serial killer, but she's only one of two people ever identified. We asked Dr. Bedell, you know, obviously science and CSI aren't exactly what, what they were, you know, or are now, but why is it so hard to get IDs for these victims? And how did we ID these people? Many of the bodies they didn't find soon enough to take a set of prints. Uh, This was also the Depression. People were moving around, riding the rails. Victim number four had six different tattoos on various parts of his body. And they found his body in time to get a good set of fingerprints. Uh, His head was still in remarkably good shape. And they made a casting of it, and they displayed it at the Great Lakes Exposition, hoping somebody would recognize it. And they sent, uh, as I remember, they sent copies of the tattoos all over the country to various tattoo parlors. They assumed he was probably a sailor because it was a cliche, sailors had tattoos. Mm. You know, Elliot Ness has all these accomplishments as a city safety director, traffic accidents, which were a huge problem in the 20s and 30s and 40s. They're down 50%. The mob's been neutralized. But the papers and the national press still talk about the serial killer, they didn't have that word then, but the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. We talk about Ness's involvement in the case. And he was made city safety director. Now, city safety director is a rather odd office. I think Cleveland was one of the only cities that had one. And essentially what that meant was he was in charge of every organization that had anything to do with public safety, the police, the fire department, etc. Uh, The only office I know of he didn't have any particular control over was the sheriff's office because that was county. Uh, The murders had begun probably September 1934. Andrassi and his unidentified companion were discovered in September of 35. Uh, Ness kept his fingers off this one for quite some time. And I think he realized that this was something beyond his understanding. Maybe I shouldn't say understanding, but beyond his experience. Uh, He was, again, he was used to people who committed crimes for understandable reasons, you know, drugs, you know, bootlegging, you know, that sort of thing. And he did not become involved until September of 1936. That was just about the time the sixth body turned up in Kingsbury Run. And I think what happened is that Mayor Burton, first of all, called George Manowitz, who was chief of police, and said, get your best man on this. And this is how Peter Merlo wound up on it. Uh, Peter Merlo had the best arrest record in the Cleveland Police Department. And then I think... uh, Burton went to Ness and said, look, you've got to become more involved. No, this is getting bad.
Ness and the Cleveland police intensify their search and they're interviewing everybody and they're running down these leads. We have an eighth victim of this killer. It's believed to be Rose Wallace. We talked to Dr. Bedell about yet another victim of the Mad Butcher. Rose Wallace, victim number eight, a young boy by the name of Russell Lauer, he was 14. He was walking home from the movies one afternoon and he crossed under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge and he could see something glittering in the setting sun. And when he got close to it, he saw that it was the bridge work in a human skull. What the police found underneath the skull in a burlap bag were the skeletal remains, most of them, of a petite black woman. Uh, The identification was tentative. Uh, First of all, she disappeared about the time, Rose Wallace disappeared about the time Gerber thought the woman had been killed. Also, and again, I'm not sure exactly when this happened, but a young African-American gentleman walked into the police department and said, may I see the bridge work that was in that skull? And when he saw the bridge work, he said, that's my mother, that's Rose Wallace. So to me, that's a fairly good <coughs> Especially for this case, yeah. Yeah, uh, for something like this. But even today, it's considered to be a tentative identification. The idea of a serial killer just didn't really exist in the 1930s. You know, there's a great line in one of my favorite modern films, uh, The Dark Knight, my, uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight with, with Heath Ledger in his, in his final role as the Joker. And Alfred, the butler, says to, to Christian Bale, Batman, you know, some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought or bullied or reasoned or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. This wasn't something Elliot Ness was used to. And when you take on mobsters, you find out where the alcohol is. You find out who their victims are. You break down the door. You make the bust. But with this, this was different. We talked to Dr. Bedell about how the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run would have confounded not just Ness, but everybody. Uh, But part of the problem was their understanding of murder in those days. Uh, First of all, they had no idea what a serial killer was. A serial killer, as a term, was was not defined until the middle of the 1970s. And they operated on the assumption in those days that people were murdered by other people that they knew for understandable reasons, greed, jealousy, whatever. Motive. Motive. And so the first step in tracing a murderer was to identify the victim. Then you looked at the victim's family and you looked at the victim's acquaintances. And when they couldn't identify any of these people, it was like running into a wall. It just did not occur to them in the 1930s that they might be dealing with somebody who was murdering people he did not know for his own unfathomable reasons. As we talk about Rose Wallace being our eighth victim, you know, who are we looking for? We talked to Dr. Bedell about the investigation, and did we have any suspects at this point? You know, it's almost 1937. It's been going on for almost three years. Oh, they had hundreds of suspects. I've kind of forgotten the exact number, but it seems to be seems to me that the Cleveland police 
interviewed as many as 1,500 people. They were running down every lead. They were running down every lead they had. Uh, Merlo and Zalewski, I think, interviewed about 900. Uh, one of the interesting things that was done in the summer of 36 is that the then coroner, Arthur J. Pierce, called what came to be known as a torso clinic. Mm-hmm. And he brought in all the police who had worked on any of the murders. He brought the anatomists from Case, well, it wasn't Case Western Reserve in those days, it was just Western Reserve University Medical School. And uh, the heads of the various psychiatric institutions, Ness was there, and it was sort of a skull session. What are we looking for? And if you think about it, this is really remarkable. This is one of the first examples we have, that we know of at least, of what we would call modern FD, uh, FBI profiling. And they came reasonably close uh, with their portrait. The big problem was the dissection, or I should say the disarticulation was being carried out with what the coroner said was surgical skill. Right. Now that could mean a butcher, it could mean a hunter, could mean a doctor. In the summer of 1938, August 16th, 1938, we've now had 10 murders. That's not even counting the lady on the lake. And at East 9th and Lakeside, right by, you know, within sight of Elliot Ness's office building, the 11th and 12th victim are found. The new coroner, Sam Gerber. Uh, you can go back and hear about Sam Gerber in our first murder episode. We covered the, it's a two-parter when we covered the murder, um, the Sam Shepard murder, as it's known, you know, from the movie and television show, The Fugitive, also took place in Cleveland. Gerber, now just starting his career with the torso murder, uh, would play a prominent role in that. So go back and listen to that season one, our very first true crime episode. But Gerber finds um, a 12th victim while he's there. And later, you know, just a day or two later, at 12.40 in the morning, Elliot Ness and a group of 35 police officers, detectives, decide to raid the hobo jungles of Kingsbury Rock. 11 squad cars, two vans, three fire trucks. They descend on these makeshift, you know, shacks, um, really in the area kind of behind, I guess, where it says, you know, the Cuyahoga River kind of bends behind Public Square. And they raid and they work their way south and east, you know, through the run, eventually gathering up 63 men. This overnight raid. And at dawn, as it lights, the policemen, the firemen, they search for clues for this murder. Almost all these victims either frequented or lived in Kingsbury Run. And then on orders from safety director Elliot Ness, Kingsbury Run was set on fire. All these shanties and shacks are burned to the ground. We talked to Becky McFarland as Ness got killed in the press for this. Um, you know, why would you ruin these people's lives who have so little? You know, the country's still in the grips of the Depression. Becky McFarland offers a different perspective, that Ness had his reasons, and, and that really what he did w- was helping not just those people, but also to, to save future victims of the Cleveland Torso murder. Well, he had one of his detectives, Peter Merlot, um, in costume, shall you say, to look like a hobo and to live down in the um, 
the jungle, as they called it there, Kingsbury Run, where hundreds, like over 300 people, were living in cardboard shanties. Was it a good place for them? No. It was very dangerous for them. And it seemed to be the feeding ground of the Kingsbury Run murderer, where he would go and, um, you know, take these people many of whom were never identified because they probably, very likely, had just hopped off a train from who knows where and weren't identified. But did he do the wrong thing? I say no. I say it was a good choice because everybody who was in the run, we had shelters, and he took them up and put them in shelters where they were safe and dry and could have a hot meal, much better than what they were living in the cardboard shanties. So they were better off where they were taken, and then the run was burned, but it really got rid of a, a blight on the city that shouldn't have been there anyway. You know, we're drinking the Great Lakes Elliott Ness while, while we record tonight. Um, it's our beer for the episode, but Great Lakes tells the story, you know, at their at their pub and restaurant on West 25th, um, you know, there's a bullet hole above the door. Uh, whether it was shot by Ness or shot at Ness, uh, a story that they tell their connection to the famous lawman, Elliot Ness. We asked Becky about that. Is there any truth to it? Um, she's had the beer, but she she kind of you know debunks that story that sometimes they tell at the Great Lakes Brewery. I tell Pat and Dan Conway that you know, they can tell their stories and sell their beer, but if anybody asks me the honest truth, the honest truth is that the two bullets in the back bar That's what it is. have nothing to do with Elliot Ness. Uh, for one, the caliber of those bullets are, yeah, are way too small. Um, it wouldn't have been connected with any gun he was assigned, and no one shoots at a safety director. Right. Now, Great Lakes Brewery is a wonderful restaurant now. Love their beer, love their food. It's, very it's nice, a yeah. great place to go. But in the 1930s, <laughs> that was a dive bar that Elliot Ness would not have gone to. Did he like to have a cocktail and dance? Yes, but he would go downtown to the hotel ballrooms. He would not have gone to a dive bar in Ohio City. On West 25th, yeah. But there is a connection with Elliot Ness and Great Lakes Brewery in that uh, Pat and Dan Conway's mother, Margaret Conway, was a secretary for Elliot Ness. Hmm. Um, she was in a steno pool. Uh, Ness wasn't assigned a particular secretary just for him, but they all used a steno pool, and she was one of the girls who were in there. Ohio View the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio and all points in between, go to RideGoBus.com. Thanks again to all the support we've been getting this season from GoBus, uh, our friends. They operate an intracity bus service all over Ohio. Uh, you can check them out again at RideGoBus.com. Finally, in the summer of 1939, the county sheriff's office makes an arrest in the case. They arrest a bricklayer named Frank Dolezal, 52 years old. He knew Andrassi had some kind of connection. He knew Flo Palillo. But the arrest and, and, and confession 
and I use air quotes around that, that Dolezal gave, uh, really was dubious. Peter Merlo, the Ness's main investigator, and Ness himself really didn't have any confidence in this suspect. We talked to Dr. James Vidal about the arrest and the accusations and the charges that were to be filed against Frank Dolezal. Was he the serial killer? Frank Dolezal's connection to any of them is tenuous, to say the least. He apparently lived with Flo Palillo at one time, at least he said he did. Uh, the only connection he could have had with Edward <coughs> Andrassy and Rose Wallace was that all three of those victims, as well as Dolezal himself, drank at this very seedy bar uh, on Central, 20th and Central or 21st, I'm really not sure which. Um, but Dolezal supposedly makes a confession. He made three. Yeah, so what was not quite right about these confessions? Everything. <laughs> uh, Merlo said to the newspapers, this is the first time I've ever seen anyone confess to a crime like a murder, and he didn't know the details of the crime he was confessing to. Right. Um, but he also, he has some injuries as well, doesn't he? Or those discovered later? Uh, the injuries were discovered at his autopsy. Okay. Uh, he was, well, some of them were visible. Uh, there were bruises on his face which were visible. But unfortunately, before they can even really get him into court, Frank Dolezal turns up dead in the custody of the sheriff's office. His suspicious death combined with his suspicious confession. Uh, we talked to Dr. James Bedell about whether he believes Dolezal had anything to do with the murders in Kingsbury Run. Uh, he was found hanging in his cell August 24, 1939, and it was ruled a suicide. Well, but, there were some suspicious circumstances oh about Lord, that as well. There were suspicions about that. Uh, first of all, he supposedly had only been hanging a few minutes. He supposedly hanged himself with a cleaning cloth or towel that he had asked for so he could mop up his cell. Uh, when they performed an autopsy, they found he had six broken ribs, three on either side of his body. And there's no way he could have been performing his job. He was a bricklayer six broken ribs right so obviously these six broken ribs were courtesy of the county sheriff and his men and a lot of the sheriff's deputies in those days had the reputation of being first-rate thugs he was hanging from a hook that was sh shorter or closer to the ground than he was <laughs> he was a short guy it's not impossible you can do that by yeah. sitting down uh, but it's always been regarded as a little bit suspicious. In fact, I'm very happy to say that uh, Mark Stone and I, my co-worker and collaborator. The filmmaker, right? The filmmaker, yeah. the documentary filmmaker. Uh, we took everything we had out to Mercyhurst College in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, where they have this wonderful forensic department. And we had a couple of different classes go over the photographs and go over the autopsy report. Of Dolezal. Of Dolezal. And they just said, no way. You know, this, we're not sure what it is, but it is not what it's purported to be. And Ness doesn't buy the sheriff's story. He never did. 
and he stays involved in the case. And, and according to Becky, he may have even had a suspect at this time, around the same time. We talked to Becky McFarland about Ness's investigation into the torso murders. Well, sure he was. I mean, he was the boss. He was the safety director in charge of all facets of police. And um, he was ultimately responsible. Um, Was it his fault that it didn't get solved? No. I would say it seemed pretty clear that um, the press at the time really kind of had it out for him. They were tired of the murder being on the front page of the paper for so long, and they wanted it solved. And, you know, the short version is the county sheriff was asked to come in and solve it and kind of undermined Elliot Ness's investigation. He didn't want to take it to court unless he was fully ready, and he wasn't at that time, although he was very, very close to naming it, uh, who had done it. And without a doubt now, history would say who did it, but could it ever be proved? No. Vidal really has done the work on this case over the last 20, 30 years, even longer. And it's through his research that we learned that Ness had his own suspect. He didn't name him specifically in his memoirs and when he talked with some of his you know, people who after his career was over. Um, but Dr. Vidal tells us about this potential suspect, the man who could be the Cleveland Torso murderer. Dr. Francis Edward Sweeney was a surgeon. Uh, He was born on the east side, I think memory serves in 1894. Uh, His father was a teamster back in the days when that literally met someone who handled a team of horses. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Uh, They were, the father was either came from Ireland or he was already here. I found two different documents that say different things. But it was they were a lower middle class working family. Uh, he went to Western Reserve Pharmacology School in the early 20s. After the war? After the war, yes. He was a medic in the war during World War One, And when he came back to Cleveland, he became involved in Veterans Affairs, and he went to Western Reserve University as a student in pharmacology. When he graduated, he went to the University of St. Louis to medical school. Uh, He came back to Cleveland in 1927 and married a nurse who worked at Charity Hospital. Then in 1929, when he graduated, he came back to Cleveland, uh, set up kind of a practice, with five other doctors in an office on Broadway, pretty much at the corner of Broadway and Pershing. And the five of them had this very lucrative practice, supposedly. Uh, Apparently sometime around that time, or maybe in 1930-31, his wife became worried uh, he was becoming abusive mentally and physically to her and their two sons. 
Uh, he would disappear for long periods of time without telling anybody where he was. So at the end of 1933, she took him to probate court and had him put in Old City Hospital for observation for alcoholism. And he was there for a month. This is probably where he and Andrassy met. I tried my damnedest to find out if Andrassy was there while he was, and the records simply don't go back quite that far, but chances are he might have been. And he was released after a month, within a week. Uh, his wife was back saying, pick him up, he's crazy. Uh, he disappeared pretty much after that fell off the radar. Just like in Chicago, Ness had his own team. I think it was about six guys that he called the unknowns. They're kind of off the books like the untouchables, you know, to aid in his investigations. Um, he picked a team of kind of incorruptible lawmen, the unknowns who, who worked to gather evidence against criminals, crooked, you know, against crooked cops. But they also worked the torso murder investigation. You know, and his team was suspicious. They talk about, you know, they actually are the ones who bring in Dr. Francis Sweeney. He became Ness's secret suspect. We're really not sure exactly when. Ness played his cards very, very close to his chest. But at any rate, people who were working for Ness and they were apparently a group of low-level criminals uh, that were working for Ness's main collaborator, uh, David Cowles, who was head Cowles, of yeah. who what we would call CSI <coughs> today. He was head of the Cleveland Criminal Bureau, and there were apparently six of them. And they were paid somehow, apparently with Louis B. Seltzer's money with the Cleveland Press. But apparently it was maybe one of them who said we're becoming very curious about this doctor. Ness and his crew finally bring in Sweeney. And they keep him now what's called the Renaissance Hotel on Public Square. Uh, great hotel. Um, Miss Ohio View the World and I have stayed there often. But they bring him in through the back, and he's drunk. He's very, very drunk, Sweeney is. Um, but they dry him out, and they begin interrogating him for days. Like, <laughs> criminal defendants didn't really have the same rights as they do now, but they take this off-the-grid former doctor, and they have him in the Renaissance Hotel. I don't think it was called the Renaissance back then. Um, and they're just raking him over the coals. And the story, as it was finally told, was that Ness picked him up in secret, took him to the old Cleveland Hotel, which is now the Renaissance. In what, in spring of 38, I think, summer of 38? Uh, late summer of 38, yeah. No, excuse me, spring of 38. Okay. May. Took him to a hotel room, and when you think about this, the cloak and dagger aspects of this are just incredible. I mean, first of all, they picked him up in secret. They certainly didn't take him up to the registration desk. <laughs> so they must have spirited him in back way somewhere. We assume that Ness must have had a room 
set aside specifically for this purpose down at the end of a corridor where people didn't often go. Right, or a block of rooms. Uh, it was a bedroom, we think. Yeah. And they kept in there for about 10 days to two weeks. And one of the people who was present said he was so drunk it took him three days to dry him out. What is really remarkable about this is that Ness called in uh, a marker from his Chicago days. And Leonard Keeler, the man who invented the modern-day polygraph, came to Cleveland with his machine in secret. gave Dr. Sweeney a lie detector test and then supposedly said to Ness, that's your man, I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. As crazy and dangerous as Sweeney was, you know, Ness says he's left in the room with him alone at one point and didn't realize it and he starts looking for things that he can defend himself because he thinks this guy's the killer and he thinks he's crazy. But Sweeney was connected. His cousin was a fierce nest detractor and a powerful Democrat in Northeast Ohio. A powerful Democrat who railed against Ness and the police's inability to solve this murder. The political concerns to which you are referring, Frank Sweeney's cousin was Martin L. Sweeney, who was the congressman from the 20th district. A Democrat. And a Democrat. And he was making great political hay for quite a long time why can't these damn Republicans catch the torso killer who's terrorizing the city? Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall when he heard that their main suspect was his down-and-out cousin? <laughs> but Ness and his team walk away very sure that Sweeney was the killer. So why didn't they arrest him? Even the little bit of evidence that they had, which was scant, why didn't they just bring him in, bring him to the grand jury, take him to trial? They're so desperate to find somebody. We asked Dr. James Bedell about that confusing uh, reason and why they didn't arrest him. Uh, the thing that most people assume was that there was some sort of secret backroom deal made. I don't think it was that simple. First of all, Merlot would have never put up with a guilty man going free. Uh, George Manowitz's grandson also assures me his grandfather would never have put up with that. So I think what most likely happened is that they went to Martin Sweeney, or Martin Sweeney came to them, and they said, we will keep this quiet, not just for your sake, but for the sake of Frank Sweeney's family. Why put them through this? If we take him to court, he'll be judged insane and he'll wind up in an institution anyway. So why don't we just skip that step and get him off the streets now? And shortly after that, after victims number 11 and 12 were found in August of 38, lo and behold, Frank Sweeney committed himself to the Sandusky Soldiers and Sailors Home. Yeah, on the lake. On the lake. do stop and they never start back up again there's you know dr bedell falls you know whether there's killings in youngstown and newcastle pennsylvania that are similar to this he doesn't believe that there's that connection 
like Peter Merlo did, one of the investigators. But Ness takes a lot of crap for this, that he never arrested the killer. But his record is incredible, minus this, this failure of prosecuting the torso murder. We talked to Becky McFarlane about the turnaround, the crime turnaround in Cleveland under Ness. Well, the, the foremost thing that just jumps out is that when he came, we were the most dangerous city in the country. Three years later, we won the National Safety Award. And I think that's amazing to consider because they took into effect a lot of considerations, you know, for the automobile safety, juvenile crime, and so on. Uh, so many facets that had dropped dramatically that made us be selected as the safest city in the country. And I think that's just awesome. But even with Sweeney f- safely put away in the Sandusky Sailors' home, you know, basically for the insane, Sweeney still taunts them. Merlo and, and his uh, Ness assistant Cowles, who was kind of like the head of the CSI back then, uh, but especially with Ness, with postcards and correspondence, taunting these investigators about the killings. We talked to Dr. Bedell about those postcards some of which have survived today. You can see them at the Cleveland Police Museum, a great spot if you ever have some time up in Cleveland. Go check it out. The Cleveland Police Museum has a lot of stuff about the, the torso killings. Well, Frank Sweeney ultimately wound up in the veterans facility in Dayton, Ohio, and he bombarded Ness with jeering letters and postcards, kind of a catch-me-if-you-can thing. And they are all crazy, disconnected jokes. Obviously was not in his right mind at the time. And apparently there were a lot of them. Ness's wife at the time remembers them uh, and told Marilyn Barsley that she was quite afraid. And some of those postcards still exist. Five of them survive in the in Elliot Ness's papers at the Western Reserve Historical Society. They had examples of his handwriting, so they knew that he had written them. Well, he also referred to himself as Elliot Ness's paranoidal, paranoidal nemesis. Uh, supposedly, he sent Ness or Cowles, one of the people involved in the case, this is before he'd been picked up, a card with the tree and a note saying, dig here, with an arrow pointing at the bottom of the tree. That one, unfortunately, has not survived. Now, the card you did refer to, uh, the American Sweeney, one of the cards says, good cheer, the American Sweeney. And of course, well, what in the age does that mean? This is probably as close as he comes to saying, yeah, you got me, but you couldn't get me. It's probably a backhanded reference to Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, who sent his clients down into the basement, recut them up, and baked them into meat pies. The murders stop, and a new mayor is elected. And Ness leaves the Office of Safety Director in 1942, and he joins the war effort. Becomes the national director for the Federal Social Pro- Protection Program. He's really writing and doing a lot about sexually transmitted diseases among soldiers and spreading awareness. But 1947, he actually runs for mayor of Cleveland. This is years after he's left. Uh, He's working at Diebold, 
uh, down in Akron and commuting in Cleveland, but he runs as a Republican. Cleveland is staunchly Democratic at this point. We talked with Becky just briefly about his failed run to be mayor of Cleveland. Was he a natural politician? Absolutely not. He wanted nothing to do with politics. He was even quoted once as saying, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat so long as you're honest. Um, he was, they knew, people in the Republican Party knew that Tom Burke was going to be on the ballot. He was a very strong Democrat, really strong with the labor unions, and in Cleveland they were strong here. Did anybody stand a chance running against him? Probably not. So the Republicans scrambled to think like, well, who would be a big name and who's somebody we really look up to and um, can be grateful to? And most certainly that would have been Elliot Ness. Um, he did everything right, campaigning and backyards and any empty schoolhouse or civic assembly, he did. But even so, he was soundly defeated two to one. And I think he was relieved because I don't think his heart was in politics. He just didn't think that way. Late in the 1990s, A&E uh, a show called Biography. They came to Cleveland, did an episode on Ness. Uh, you can find it online. And Becky was featured and really helped a lot with that. Uh, help producers with that episode. And Ness dies in 1957, um, 54 years old, in Cottersport, Pennsylvania, from a heart attack. You know, some say his years of drinking, uh, which some would say would get worse as he got older, played a role. That's a little unclear, but he did die pretty young. Uh, but Becky was was working on that A and E biography, and and later she you know. She was put in charge of Ness's memorial service, a memorial service in Cleveland that took place 40 years after his death, and it was through a call she got from a producer of A&E Biography. The one thing I didn't know is whatever happened to him after he died, because I knew his widow was so poor she could only afford to cremate him, but I didn't know what happened to the ashes, so... About a year after the Amy biography aired, one of the producers called me, and he was so kind. He said it bothered him that there was one thing I didn't know, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't tell me how he knew, but it was very mysterious. He gave me a woman's first name and a phone number and said, the rest is up to me. So I called her and did the old, you don't know me, but, and I said, I serve on the board of trustees for the Cleveland Police Museum, and I understand she had the ashes of Elliot Ness, and she had, you know, acknowledged that she did, along with the ashes of his widow Elizabeth and their young son Robert. And uh, they were just sitting in her garage. And I said, well, if she wouldn't entrust me with them, I would like to plan a nice funeral. And it took me a year to earn her trust, and then it took me another year to plan a funeral. But it was held September 10th of 1997. And that was at Lakeview Cemetery, right? I chose Lakeview Cemetery because it was curious. The lady who gave me the ashes gave me one restriction, and that was that the ashes had to be interned in water. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, my only thought is that I know to relax, and I mean really relax, Elliot would ride on the Aquarama or the C&D or the C&B uh, boats on the lake, and that... He could put down his guard. He didn't have to be watching over his shoulder thinking, you know, who might be out to get me. So he would just ride them um, full circle. He wouldn't get off in Detroit or Buffalo. He would just ride full circle to relax. And that maybe that is why she thought his ashes should be in water. 
Nessa's ashes are scattered near Wade Lake and Lakeview Cemetery. And he rests near some of the most prominent Ohioans and Clevelanders of all time. President Garfield, the memorial's there. It's a really cool place. You should go check it out. I had a tour, a self uh, tour from some of the people who were restoring that uh, last summer. John Hay, go back and listen to one of my favorite episodes, uh, Ohio vs. the Gilded Age, back in season two, uh, you know, one of my faves. Uh, John Hay's buried there. John D. Rockefeller, the subject of our next episode, the richest man in the world, is buried right there at Lake, uh, Lakeview Cemetery. But to Becky, Elliot Ness stands out above the rest for his contributions to the city of Cleveland. It, to me, if Elliot Ness signed off the rights to the book The Untouchables, from which every TV and movie has spun from, then that tells me that's not fair to his memory to have all this media spin off from, from something that isn't true. And I think just look at the true facts of what he did in Cleveland, and that's awesome. Yeah. I can't think where one man personally had more of an impact on the city of Cleveland in Cleveland's 200-some years than Elliot Ness did. Yes, we had John D. Rockefeller. He had a lot of money and all, but, hey, he set fire to the flats. <laughs> <laughs> and the Mathers and all, and the list goes on and on and on of some really good industrialists and um, generous people. But but Elliot Ness gave of himself. He didn't make a profit. He didn't have money to give, but he had himself and his skills and the knowledge. Um, he had a good head for business, a good head for marketing, and he really sincerely turned the city around. You know, as Becky argues that no one had as much of a positive impact on Cleveland, you know, Cleveland history as Elliot Ness, uh, maybe LeBron James, I guess you could argue now. Um, but there's one blight on his record. And just like LeBron has the blight of leaving Cleveland two different times, Ness never solved the torso murders. Or did he? We asked. Dr. James Fidel, you know, was Ness right? Was Francis Sweeney the torso murderer? Was Sweeney the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run? Um, you believe that Francis Sweeney, Dr. Sweeney, is the, the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run? Yes. How certain are you? 99%. Let me add this caveat. Everything we have found out about him points to his guilt. Nothing points away. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lickery Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is In the Wake of the Butcher 2014 uh, by Dr. James Bedell, who's great enough to join us with his awesome, uh, his incredible voice, 
his mutton chops. Uh, just a really cool dude, really happy to meet him. And he is the expert. He's done so much research on this. You know, whenever we have an author like Dr. Bedell on, we like to talk to him just about, you know, writing their book. I found it so interesting. Maybe you know, I want to write a book someday. Uh, but we asked him, you know, how did he become the expert on this subject? Uh, how long did it take to write this book? You know, and what are some of those sources that he used and to write his book in the wake of The Butcher? Oh, I would say about 10 years, all things considered. Uh, first of all, city newspapers. Of course, they come with their own problems. Uh, whatever police reports you could find, and there weren't many left. Back in those days, police were allowed to take their reports home with them, when they retired especially. But I was extremely lucky. I got a call once, one day, from the curator of the Cleveland Police Historical Society Museum, and she had just been contacted by Peter Merlot's daughter, and Peter Merlot was the lead investigator on the case. I called her, explained who I was and what I was doing, and she said, oh yes, I can. you can have all my father's papers. And I was going to go down there and duplicate them. I had it all set up where I was going to stay, and I called her and said, I'll be down such and such a time. And she said, oh, it's all done. She said, I took her to my daughter's office and did it there. Mm -hmm. took her eight hours. Yeah. And I always tell people, in that year, Santa Claus came in May and he wore a FedEx uniform. <laughs> we, I, I should say that we all, we owe all of this knowledge, this early knowledge about Frank Sweeney, to Marilyn Bardsley, who did the pioneering, pioneering work on this case in the 1970s. She was the first person to identify Frank Sweeney. And the people, there were still people living who had been with Ness at the time, and they corroborated saying, yeah, that's the guy. And thanks again to Dr. Bedell for joining us. And he believes the case is solved. That Ness and, and everyone right, that Sweeney was the killer that was hacking off these limbs and heads across Cleveland in the 1930s. So grab that book. We've got a link to it in our, um, in our episode notes. And again, thank you so much to him for joining us. And thank you to Becky. Um, she does a great a couple appearances at the Music Box Supper Club. They do these things called Cleveland Stories. But if you look up Becky McFarland, Elliot Ness, um, she's got a great little half-hour show that they did on local television there of her talking about Ness. Really fun. Um, and thank you so much. Like I said, she's the expert. You can't talk about Elliot Ness without talking with Becky McFarland. She really opened my eyes uh, to his career. So check her out on, on YouTube as well. In our next episode, we'll have three guests as we talk about Ohio versus wealth. We stay in Cleveland to talk about the richest man in the world, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, so excited for this episode. It was really fun. And we'll show you how somebody from Cleveland can become the richest person in the world and the controversial life and how people you know, tried to take down him in Standard Oil and the monopolies and the trust busting and President Roosevelt. Uh, should be a really fun episode next uh, next week. Actually, that'll be out on March 1st. Thanks again to our guest, Stacey Halfmoon from the Ohio History Connection and you know all the great work she does as we look forward to another Tribal Nations conference. And you know, as we leave you, don't forget to rate and review the show. 
It really helps us if you get on iTunes. You can scroll down on your on your phone and shoot us a quick review. Um, follow us on Instagram. We have a Twitter account at Ohio v. the World. And obviously, follow us on Facebook. Tell your friends. The next time you see somebody drinking an Elliot Ness, uh, you can drop a little bit of knowledge on them. Uh, not just about the beer and how their stories up there that the brewery are fake, but about his great career and really that, you know, all the stuff about him and the Untouchables really wasn't true. It was really in Cleveland, in Ohio, where Elliot Ness made his name. So thanks again to our guests and thanks for listening. Uh, we'll do a true crime episode again next year. So if you have any show ideas of, of really interesting murders and crime stories here in Ohio, email us at Ohio v. the World at gmail.com. That's how we get some of these really fun show ideas. Again, go check us out. We were just on the Confluence cast on ColumbusUnderground.com. Uh, check out our interview with Tim Fulton. Uh, really fun time as we talk about the show, future episodes, uh, and we really talk a lot about our, our fans and our listeners. So go find that. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been episode 10, Ohio versus Murder. Ohio View the World is brought to you by GoBus. Hit up RideGoBus.com and all Ohio bus service. Whether you're going from Cleveland to Cincinnati or the $10 trip from Athens to Columbus, you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.